fact, in those days, Hezekiah was sick and near death, and he prayed to the Lord, and he, that's God, spoke to him and gave him a sign. Now, uh, there in just one verse, uh, the writer of Chronicles summarizes for us a lot more lengthy narrative that we get in Second Kings chapter 20. I know that's quite a ways back for when we were studying through the book of Second Kings together. It's also recorded the same narrative described in just one verse in summary form here in Isaiah chapter 38. And there it describes this time in Hezekiah's life where he incurred some type of a terminal illness. And in the midst of that, a word came from the Lord, from God's prophet, saying to him, set your house in order for you're going to die. In other words, he incurred some terminal illness that was going to be the end of his life. And the prophet of God actually came with a word from the Lord telling him, to prepare to set his house in order because this illness was going to be the final illness in his life. It was going to lead to the end of his life. It's at that point that we're told that Hezekiah turned to the Lord and began to pray. It doesn't say specifically what he was praying about. It just says that he was asking God to remember his faithfulness and how he had lived. And ultimately then it says that the Lord heard his prayer and sent back the prophet with a word from the Lord telling him that God had heard his prayer and that his life was going to be extended for 15 more years. And God then gave him a sign, in fact, a sign to show him how faithful he was. God literally, if you would, somewhat stopped the whole world to show himself faithful to his one servant, Hezekiah. Remember the sundial said went back about 10 or so degrees. If my memory serves you right, the degrees may be off there. But God literally caused the sundial to go back, and that was the way they would measure time in that day. And it would happen by the way the sun would cast upon this sundial. And God demonstrated that he had heard his prayer and gave him this sign that he was going to have a 15-year extension to his life. Now, certainly, Hezekiah is to be commended in that when he was sick and near death, experiencing a terminal illness, that in that time he looked to the Lord and he sought the Lord. We read other times where individuals said would have a malady in their body and they would seek the physicians, but they wouldn't seek God's help. Uh, and God certainly uses physicians. I believe God uses medicine. I think it's good stewardship. Uh, you know, Jesus himself uh, said that it's not those who are well that need a physician, but the sick. Uh, Luke was a physician that helped Paul out. Paul told Timothy uh, to not only drink water, but also to use a little bit of wine for his stomach infirmities that he was dealing with uh, in that ancient culture that would help kill some of the bacteria or problems that he was experiencing in some way. So God does use those things. And I think there's a balance between recognizing that God can use uh, medicinal forms and physician assistance to help us to get better. But we always, of course, want to maintain the balance and that we're looking to the Lord, not only to guide us through that process, but we also recognize that God can heal. Uh, and there are times when God does heal miraculously. We see it in the life and ministry of Jesus. And we see it in the Old Testament where God would bring a miraculous healing. And that was uh, sort of seemed to be the balance when you study those chapters. And I'll let you, for time's sake, do that yourself, uh, of how God worked in a, a cooperative way with both of those things in Hezekiah's life. So it's very commendable that Hezekiah sought the Lord. 
in his sickness, he prayed to the Lord and it says that God spoke to him and gave him that prophetic word that he would extend his life and then gave him a sign that that was going to come to pass. Now, the one thing I would say in connection to this before we move on briefly is Hezekiah in this instant therefore becomes kind of a unique case study in the fact that sometimes we talk about that God may have a perfect will or an intended plan, an ideal plan for our life, and then a permissive will. Uh, and the idea being that uh, God may have a perfect ideal of what his highest plan and expectation was, but yet God in his sovereignty and his mercy at times uh, may on occasion grant us permissively something that we may ask and may allow us to experience something because he has given us free will. And sometimes God honors that and will allow us to have what we asked of him. Uh, so I bring that to, to the surface because God told Hezekiah this illness is going to be the thing that you will die from prepare yourself and he got a prophetic word from God this was to be the end Hezekiah for whatever reason didn't want to die yet and so he cried out to God it seems that he was inferring to God or directly asking God please extend my life I don't want to die yet and he was begging God for mercy it seems to some degree to live longer and God allowed him to live 15 more years permissively you might say here's the thing to keep in mind those last 15 years he didn't do very well he lived 15 more years of natural existence on earth but in those last 15 years he really didn't do too well spiritually and it seems in some ways that it's a good reminder that sometimes God's permissive will may allow us what we want. And we may say, but God, but please. And sometimes God will grant and allow us in a permissive way, maybe to have what we want or what we really are asking of him. But we should always remember God's plan, God's choice, God's perfect will is always what's best. And to just say, Lord, uh, you know, I may be asking for this, but if that's really not what's best for me, your will be done. <laughs> Lord, please, you pick for me. You know what's best. And Hezekiah becomes just kind of an interesting study in that very reality. God mercifully gives him 15 more years, allows him to have it. But it is interesting to see some of the things that happened in the latter part of his reign that weren't real beneficial in some ways, uh, which if he had just gone home to be with the Lord, some of those events honestly probably would have never transpired. Uh, and so it is interesting to kind of think through how that works with God's perfect will and then his permissive will when we ask for things and he grants them to us. So it knows verse 25, God heals him. But look what happens right away. Verse 25. But Hezekiah did not repay according to the favor shown him. So rather than be grateful and thankful that God spared his life, extended his life for 15 years it didn't move his heart to be so grateful that he just served God faithfully in humility the rest of his days. It says right here, the Holy Spirit says he did not repay. In other words, he didn't repay God for his kindness by living in a faithful way responsibly. It says he didn't repay according to the favor shown him for his heart was lifted up. The idea there is an implication. He became proud at this stage of his life. God had blessed him tremendously. And he was doing pretty well handling the blessing of God and how God was using him mightily. But at the end, in this last extension of his life, he started slipping gears in regards to the humility factor. And he started, unfortunately, in his latter days, struggling with pride a little bit more. 
becoming a little bit arrogant and full of himself, and the prosperity and blessing was something that seems to start to go to his head and to his heart. Ultimately, it says his heart was lifted up. Therefore, wrath was looming over him and over Judah and Jerusalem. So he is provoking the anger of God towards himself as well as the nation that he was leading. So verse 26, then Hezekiah humbled himself for the pride of his heart and he and the inhabitants of Jerusalem so that the wrath of the Lord did not come upon them in the days of Hezekiah. Ultimately, the wrath of the Lord came in the days afterwards and Hezekiah contributed to some of that. But it is good to see that though he had a bout with arrogance and pride and his heart was lifted up, that verse 26 says that Hezekiah, recognizing the error of his way, that he humbled himself for the pride of his heart. And I want you to take note of, especially as we go into the next chapter with Manasseh, this valuable reminder of how the Bible speaks about that a person humbles themselves. You know, often we think about, you know, I, I love when God humbles somebody or sometimes God had to really humble me. And, and I understand that dynamic and what we mean by that. But more often than not, you'll notice when you read in the Bible, it speaks more to the language of that a person humbles themselves in the sight of the Lord. That humbling ourselves is something that we are supposed to do. When we realize the error of our ways, when we realize we've been proud or stubborn or rebellious, that we're responsible to humble ourselves, to humble ourselves under God's mighty hand, the Bible says, to humble yourself in the sight of the Lord the New Testament declares. So Hezekiah, it says here, he humbled himself for the pride of his heart. And sometimes we need to do that. We need to recognize the pride of our heart. Lord, my heart's been proud and I I humble myself for that. I'm sorry for that, Lord, and to humble ourselves before God's awesome authority and presence. Verse 27 tells us why this was necessary. This is kind of giving a little bit of the reason of what was going on and why Hezekiah was battling with his own pride and ultimately needed to humble himself. I mean, look what was going on. Verse 27, even in his latter days, it said he had very great riches. So his wealth increased. He had, you know, excess finances. He had money to do whatever he wanted to do. He had great wealth, which makes someone sometimes feel they're greatly more important or somehow more valuable or more special. Wealth can have a, a way of doing that. Also, it says, you know, he had great riches, but great honor. That is, people were impressed with him. Uh, he, was, he was seen as someone with favor. People looked upon him in a favorable way. So his reputation's increasing, and people are impressed with him. He's becoming more popular, and that's a difficult thing, again, to manage. So he made himself, notice, treasures for silver, for gold, for precious stones, for spices, for shields, and for all kinds of desirable items. Again, you notice verse 27, you can tell something's happening, the heart's being lifted up. He made for himself all these things. Uh, He's being driven by his own self-interests at this point. Also, verse 28, storehouses. So instead of sharing, he's storing up more for himself. For the harvest of grain and wine and oil and stalls for all kinds of livestock and folds for flocks. Moreover, verse 29, he provided cities for himself. Now, that's pretty impressive. Providing cities for yourself? You know you're doing pretty good when you, when you can provide a whole city, plural. Add on to that for yourself. So he's providing cities for himself and possessions of flocks and herds in abundance. For notice, God had given him very much prosperity. Now, take notice of two things. Verse 29, 
God had given him very much prosperity. God was prospering him. And it is wrong for us ever to just automatically assume that if someone is being prospered, that somehow we should demonize someone for being wealthy or rich or prospering. The Bible does not teach that. Uh, The Bible speaks of those who are poor, and the Bible also speaks about those who are rich. Uh, And being wealthy in and of itself is not a wrong thing. The Bible says, even Deuteronomy, that, that the power to create wealth, the power to generate wealth comes from the Lord. Uh, There are some people spiritually, the New Testament says, who have a gift of giving. It's one of the spiritual gifts. Now, let me just be very practical in the midst of something spiritual. You can't exercise the gift of giving if you ain't got extra to give. Correct? (laughs) I mean, typically, somebody who's struggling to just pay their bills paycheck to paycheck is probably not going to be someone necessarily who has the ability financially to exercise, not that they couldn't have the gift of giving, to exercise as freely and effectively the gift of giving. But someone God's endowed with wealth, and maybe God's given the ability to just really succeed and do well with money, and for whatever sovereign reason, God's graced them with prospering, and they've prospered in business, or they just prospered in life, and they they recognize this is from the Lord, and they don't want to hoard it up, but they want to be generous, and they see money as a tool and something they can do to effectively help people or serve God's kingdom or God's purposes. So there's nothing wrong with those things in themselves. God had given him very much property. God had prospered him, blessed him. In these verses, it's very evident, silver, gold, property, all kinds of things, the, the, the difficulty is that though God had given him those things, his heart was struggling with handling those things. And though God may give those things, the difficulty is we have a responsibility to maintain our right heart condition. And First Timothy chapter 6 speaks great instruction to how the wealthy is to handle their wealth and to recognize that it comes from God and to be humble and it's something God gives us to share and to help others and not just to hoard and use in a self-serving way for ourselves so from the lord but we need to realize with it being from the lord that we have to guard our heart that it doesn't cause our heart to become in a wrong condition once we receive such things so verse 30 says this same hezekiah also stopped up the water outlet of the upper guy home and brought the water by tunnel to the west side of the city of david and hezekiah prospered it says in all his works now again verse 30 describes that 1700 foot long tunnel dug underground through solid bedrock from the two sides joining in the middle. We talked about that in our last study together, so we won't uh, elaborate much upon that, but just a reference to that, and we referenced that verse from the earlier part of the chapter when we were looking at that. Verse 31, however, notice regarding the ambassadors of the princes of Babylon, who ultimately will be the nation that comes and conquers the southern kingdom of Judah, These ambassadors come in this latter 15 years of Hezekiah's reign during the extension of his life, whom they sent to him to acquire about the wonder that was done in the land. God withdrew from him in order to test him that he might know all that was in his heart. So these ambassadors come from Babylon to come explore the land of Judah, the southern kingdom, because they're impressed about this great man Hezekiah they're hearing about. But unfortunately, Hezekiah, instead of keeping proper boundaries and recognizing, you know, sometimes it's good to keep up a boundary, especially when the enemy's trying to have access, 
into the things of the Lord. He doesn't keep up a boundary. He invites these ambassadors in, the other accounts tell us, and he's impressed by them being impressed with him. And he makes himself vulnerable as he shows all the treasures of his house and the things of the Lord to an enemy to actually give access, which they'll utilize then to come and invade later on. It's interesting that it says there in verse 31 that when these things happened, God withdrew from him in order to test him. So God, in a sense, was allowing this process to unfold as a way of testing his heart. Now, it's interesting. It says the Lord allowed this to test him. And sometimes God will allow us to be tested that he might know all that was in his heart. Now, in my translation, the word he is capitalized there, indicating that God might know all that was in his heart. And there's always kind of this you know, debate of when the Bible speaks about sometimes something happens and the Lord tests us that he might know what's in our heart. And people say, well, wait a minute, if God knows everything and God knows the condition of our heart, how could God let something happen and then see how we respond as if somehow God's discovering, oh, I can tell now by the way Tony responded what's really going on in his heart and as if somehow God has to kind of like test us to find out something about our heart condition when the Bible tells us that God knows our heart condition completely. I, I don't fully understand. I can't wrap my mind around how that works, whether or not there's some credibility to that. And God kind of does at times, like any good teacher, kind of allow something to transpire to kind of see what our response will be so that he can then hold us in a valid, just way accountable for that. And God can say, look, okay, you can't argue. Because I tested you and you showed me what was in your heart, and so therefore the way I deal with you, you can't fight against that. I gave you a chance. Uh, others say that the translators here should translate verse 31 with a small h when it says that he might know all that was in his heart. And they say that God withdrew to test him so that he, small h, they say it should be, so that Hezekiah could find out what was going on inside of his heart. Because the reality is a lot of times we don't know our own hearts. And I think there's truth to that, too. Sometimes God will allow us to be tested in a given situation because the Bible says the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked, and who can know it? And sometimes God will let me go through something. He'll let you experience something in such a way that we are tested so that we might know what's in our own heart. Sometimes we think we're stronger spiritually than we really are, and sometimes God will let us be tested and it'll reveal to us, oh, no, 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 Tony, let me show you where your heart's really at. You know, sometimes we find that out in regards to the temptation and sin. We think we're really strong sometimes and we're doing really well. and We let our guard down a little bit, right? And then God lets us be tested and we're thinking, oh, I'm fine. I conquered that sin a long time ago. Or I mean, I'm, I walk in the spirit now and, and, and God will let you be tested. You know, I know for me, I can tell you this firsthand, I'll just give a simple illustration, uh, at least two times, well, I shouldn't say that, I should say four times, because I have a wife and three children, every time God added a new person to my life, it was another test to show me how selfish I still was, how impatient and rude and unkind and, and, and all the things that you, because you kind of think, well, I'm doing pretty good. I'm walking with the Lord now. I'm doing pretty good and following Jesus. And then God says, let me give you a wife. And there you go. There's a mirror of what you are really like now that you have a wife. It's like the, God gave me the best wedding gift on my wedding day. He gave me a mirror. Her name's Trisha May. And, and it gave me a constant reflection of who I really am and where I'm really at spiritually and it, rather than believing where you think you're at spiritually sometimes. 
you know, and then you think, okay, well, I'm doing pretty good. I'm kind of doing this wife thing now, and yeah, we're kind of growing spiritually. And then, then God gives you a child, and all of a sudden, as you're up at two o'clock in the morning, and you're you know just all you're tired, you're exhausted. And there's all these other things and extra responsibilities and pressures, and and God goes, oh, you thought you were really unselfish now, don't you? And, you know, God has these ways of bringing tests, you know, whether it's through our job sometimes or a person or work, but or, or something doesn't go the way we want it to go. And we're tested and we discover what's in our heart and God allows us to see. And, and you're interesting that says that this event happened and, you know, Hezekiah didn't handle it maybe the way that he should have. And perhaps it was a way that God tested him, that he, Hezekiah, might know all that was really in his heart. And it's good when God shows us what's in our heart at times. Verse 32, now the rest of the acts of Hezekiah and his goodness, indeed, it says, are written in the vision of Isaiah, the prophet, the son of Amos, and Isaiah's prophecy, which we have in the Old Testament, does give us a great deal about Hezekiah's reign as well. The kings of Judah and Israel. So Hezekiah rested with his fathers and they buried him, in the, it says, in the upper tombs of the sons of David, and all Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem honored him at his death. And then Manasseh, his son, reigned in his place. Now, it would seem, if you follow the thought chronology-wise, that Manasseh was born in the latter years of Hezekiah's life. And so, interesting, again, it's in this extension period that he asked for that Manasseh now ends up being born, and it says that Manasseh was 12 years old when he became king, and he reigned 55 years in Jerusalem. Now, underscore in your mind, or with a pencil or a pen right there, verse 1, that this man, Manasseh, this particular king, a national leader, reigned 55 years. Again, that could just be one proof text when you have people complain about four years about any president, right? I've, I've complained about my fair share of presidents, you know, four years, eight years, 55 years. That's how long God allowed this king to reign over the people of Judah. And here's what's even more peculiar. He was one of, if not the most wicked and evil rulers that ever ruled over the people of judah and god allowed him to reign for 55 years god permitted him to stay on the throne why wouldn't god just eliminate him right away these are some of the marvelous questions i have when i get to heaven too but for 55 years god let him reign now let me just answer that i'm going to speculate why god did as we read the rest of the chapter, something happens in Manasseh's life, something marvelous for his own soul takes place. Could it be possible that God loves individuals so much that God will let a rotten, miserable person reign for 55 years that people would say, oh, this guy's messing up our nation and doing this blah, 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 blah. And God's going, I know, I know. But all of that is a part of my ultimate big picture plan to bring him to a place where I can get a hold of his heart. And could I let conditions be bad that a ruler would bring just to win one soul, God might say? Doesn't it matter more in the grand scope of eternity 
It's amazing how oftentimes God has a much broader picture and God's value systems of what matters most are often much different than ours because God is always looking for what he can do in a soul, in a life, in an individual. And you'll see that as we follow Manasseh. For 55 years, he's going to reign. Look at verse 2. It describes his evil practices. It says, but he did evil in the sight of the Lord according to all the abominations of the nations whom the Lord had cast out before the children of Israel. Remember, the reason God gave them the the land of Canaan and sent them in to push out the Ammonites and the Jebusites and the Canaanites and the Perizzites, all those people in the days of Joshua, part of the reason wasn't just that God was wanting to give them a land, yes, but the other reason was that they went into that land as an instrument of God's justice to judge the people of the land because their practices were so vile so barbaric, so wicked and evil that they needed to be judged by God and God just used Israel conquering them to actually bring about his divine justice. And that's what this is referring to here. He did evil in the sight of the Lord according to the abominations of those nations whom the Lord had cast out before the children of Israel. And then it begins to describe some of what he did. And think about it. After having this incredible godly father, right? Hezekiah. You're talking about his incredible godly father, but look what this son chooses to do. The talk shows you again, free will and the reality of that people ultimately follow the dictates of their own heart, whether good or evil. In this case, it was evil. He did evil in the sight of the Lord, it says. He rebuilt the high places which Hezekiah, his father, had broken down. So all that his father had done to leave a godly heritage, to impart a godly opportunity and path for his son he just disregarded it all he just disregarded it says that he rebuilt the high places which his own father had broken down he raised up altars for the Baals, the foreign gods and wooden images and he worshiped all the host of heaven and served them his father worshiped god his father taught him how to live i mean all of this was set before him and yet this was just all set aside how sad I and mean, probably one of the more sad things to see someone have a wonderful godly heritage set before them to have an opportunity to see you know what it means and, and to know how to serve god and then as as a child to just grow up and completely disregard that and, and to just choose to just rebel and to take your own path and let your sin nature control and guide you. And it says here that he began to do these things, not only personally, but as a national leader, leading the people in these ways. All the host of heaven, he's worshiping now the stars and getting into astrology and horoscopes. He also built altars, verse 4, in the house of the Lord. Notice, not only did he build altars to worship foreign gods, but where does it say he did it? In God's house. Now, it's one thing to build altars to foreign gods. It's a whole nother thing when you build altars to other gods in the house of the Lord, where God had said in Jerusalem shall be my name. And he built altars for all the host of heaven in the two courts of the house of the Lord. So, I mean, this would be like, let's say, for example, uh, you know, you come into the church and you come into the church and you just start worshiping other gods. You set up altars to worship Buddha and, you know, to, you know, honor all, you know, all these other gods of, of other religions that are false gods. And you do it right in the house of the Lord, not in the privacy of your, but, but right in the house of the Lord. That is kind of right in God's face. I mean, this is the brazenness 
of where his heart was at. And, and again, keep in mind, this was the national worship center for the people of God. He was doing this right in the presence of God and doing this to encourage others to follow in these practices, leading them astray. Verse 6 says he also caused his sons, notice plural, not one, sons, plural, to pass through the fire in the valley of the son of Hinnom. That's a reference to the worship of what we referred to before as the worship of the god Molech, which involved child sacrifice and actually burning their children alive, allowing them to be offered to the god Molech that, that would promise to them fertility and pleasure. And as they would engage in practices of sexual immorality, then unwanted pregnancies would transpire, and they would then just offer uh, the unwanted children to this god Molech and hope that Molech would bless them with more pleasure and you know more satisfaction in their lives. And so they literally uh, would uh, commit child sacrifice here in the same way today. Again, we may do it in a little more of a sterile manner in our culture, but that's in essence what abortion is. Uh, it's that same thing. It's taking a, a child that's unwanted and literally offering that child in sacrifice for our own personal pleasure or what would benefit us or for our own satisfaction. And again, these are just things that greatly displease the Lord and uh, things that he was not only doing once, but repeatedly and encouraging the nation. And again, our nation just participates in this rampantly, uh, continuously. And here it was going on in the days of Judah under Manasseh's reign. It was being encouraged as he was doing it repeatedly. It says with sons, plural, multiple children. How sad and tragic. And he practiced also, verse 6, soothsaying, uh, that is divination. And he used witchcraft and sorcery. And he consulted mediums and spiritists, that is, he was channeling uh, the dead. He was involved trying to contact spirits in the spirit realm, demonic spirits, to get insight and direction from them. And it says, and he did much evil in the sight of the Lord to provoke him to anger. So again, Referring to those things that you see there, whether it's the child sacrifice or the witchcraft or sorcery or mediums or channeling spirits or trying to get in contact with the dead, all of these things. Again, you can write in your notes there, Deuteronomy chapter 18, particularly verses 9 through 12. God specifically says that these things are an abomination to him. God never looks and says, oh, there are white witches and black witches. There, there are there are good sorcerers and bad sorcerers. You know, Hollywood wants to paint that picture and make us watch movies and think, well, there are good, cute sorcerers that kind of, you know, and it's a good. God says, no, it's sorcery. It's demonic. It's witchcraft. It leads down channels of unclean, demonic spirits that take people away from the Holy Spirit of God, which is the Spirit of Truth and the only Spirit that can be trusted in our lives to have any influence. And he, again, here it says they were participating in all these things. And notice these things were considered to be much evil and that was provoking God to anger. It was provoking God. It was stirring his anger as they did such things. We should never look upon these things lightly. And we, we can tend to do that, it seems, in our culture. We want to make light of such things. Oh, they're cute. They're fun. They're innocent. Not from God's perspective. Be very careful. Be very careful. God says these things provoke him to anger because he knows the destruction they can have in the soul of a person ultimately. Verse 7, he even set a carved image. It says the idol, and this would be like a perverse pornographic image is what this is referring to, which he had made, look at this, verse 7, in 
the house of God, of which God had said to David and Solomon, his son, in this house and in Jerusalem, which I have chosen out of all the tribes of Israel, I will put my name forever, and I will not again remove the foot of Israel from the land which I have appointed for your fathers, only if they are careful to do all that I have commanded them, according to the whole law and the statutes and the ordinances by the hand of Moses. So God wanting their faithfulness, their obedience to his word. And when I read verse seven there, again, I can't help but let it startle my <laughs> my inward man as much as it should. Verse seven, it literally says, you have to take consideration. He set a carved image, an idol that is like this this idolatrous statue, but not just like a, idolater statue in the sense of oh well this is our saint or this is our statue i mean that that would be displeasing to god enough because god doesn't want us putting statues and idols in a house of worship and worshiping other things but what this refers to is a carved image and idol that he made that was perverse and pornographic so and it says that he did this notice again verse 7 in the house of god he puts up a pornographic image. Now, let me, if I could, just you know, kind of impress the gravity of that upon you. Imagine we're sitting here in church service, and I determine, hey, look, I think what we're going to do this Sunday morning is we're going to look at pornography on the screens for a little bit. What would that do? I mean, just imagine that. Or imagine here's someone sitting in church and you you look over at the person next to you and you think they're using their iPhone to follow along in their Bible app there and you realize they're actually just sitting there looking at pornography while worship service is going on. Imagine that. Well, it says he put a pornographic image right in, I mean, in the house of God. How brazen is that? How hardened is someone's heart? How perverse is and sick have they become when they're doing something that brazen to displease God. That, I mean, that's severe. That's severe. Verse 9 says, So Manasseh seduced Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem. So he's not just doing these things personally. He's seducing those under his influence as a ruler. He's leading the nation, seductively drawing them away to do what? more evil than the nations whom the Lord had destroyed before the children of Israel. I have that word underlined there, two words, more evil than the nations that were destroyed. The idea is they are doing worse things now under Manasseh's reign than were taking place before the Israelites came in and conquered the land. More evil. That is how wicked he led the nation to ultimately become under his leadership Verse 10, and the Lord spoke to Manasseh and his people, but they would not listen. Look, even in his wickedness, God's still speaking to him. God blows my mind with his patience, his mercy, his compassion. Would you not think at some point God would say, you know what? I am done speaking to you. You are doing what in my house and leading my people? You've done what grievous things? I'm not speaking to you anymore. You think I want you to turn towards me now? I am disgusted by you. But it says that God kept speaking to Manasseh and the people. And if you read Isaiah's prophet prophecies in Zephaniah, God was sending these prophets to speak words of, of caution and warning, telling them, turn, begging them 
to turn back to God, warning them of the disastrous consequences that were going to come. God was speaking, but they would not listen. Again, you notice the free will. God speaks, but we choose whether or not we listen when God speaks to us. You know, and, and we can be doing some pretty wrong things. Thanks be to God that he keeps speaking to us. But understand, it is our responsibility to listen. Are we going to listen when God speaks to us? Are we going to respond? Or are we going to refuse and ignore the voice of the Lord? Well, verse 11 tells us more of God's mercy. And that's what I see this as. It says, therefore, the Lord brought upon them because they wouldn't listen they wouldn't listen to God's voice. So God says, if my voice speaking to you is not sufficient, then I'm going to have to just turn up the volume. I'm going to have to turn up the volume because I don't want to see you destroy yourself. So the Lord then brought upon them the captains of the army of the king of Assyria, who took Manasseh away with hooks. That is, they would actually put a hook through the nose or the lip as they would pull you away as a prisoner. Very painful. Bound him with bronze fetters. He became a prisoner and shackled in the miserable conditions. And carried him off to Babylon. So what does God do? God brings some severe consequences. God says, if you won't respond to my voice, then God says, then I'll see if I can get your attention by making it really miserable for you. And making it really hard and really painful. And so God says, I'll have to subject you to pain and difficulty if that's what it takes. God in his mercy, again, continuing to reach out, actually brings difficulty, brings pain, brings problems. And sometimes that's a way that God tries to awaken us, to get our attention. So God allows this to happen to the people. And look what it says, verse 12. Now, he, when he was in, circle that word, affliction. doesn't say when he was comfortable. When he was in affliction, the idea is when it hurt bad. When it was hurting really bad and he was afflicted and the pain and the pressure and the hardship was difficult, when he was in affliction, he implored the Lord as God. He finally cried out to God and humbled himself greatly before the God of his fathers and prayed to him. So what happens? Manasseh, this man, humbles himself before the Lord. He comes to a place where through the difficulty and the hardship, finally his stubborn spirit is broken and he humbles himself before the Lord in the midst of the hardship. And again, perhaps that was just what it took for Manasseh. But God is so patient in the process. I don't think God wanted him to be afflicted. God would have loved him to respond when God talked to him. But that wasn't what Manasseh was going to do. So God had to take him down a road that was hard to ultimately humble him, but it was for his own soul's sake because God in his love brought him to a place where finally it says he humbled himself before the Lord. Again, he humbled himself. Notice it was a choice to surrender, to be broken, to submit. It's humbled himself greatly and he prayed to God. I mean, what do you, what do you say at that point? Think about all he had done and, and how he had influenced so many other people so wrongly had harmed so many others, misdirected so many others. He, he prayed to the Lord. And verse 13, you can write mercy and grace abundant over this. And God received his entreaty. It doesn't say God said, excuse me? You want to talk to me now? God listened. God received his prayer, heard his supplication, and brought him back to Jerusalem into his kingdom. The idea there is restoration. God forgave him. God received him, 
and God restored him. What an amazing testament of God's mercy and grace and kindness. Manasseh's story is a wonderful picture of the grace of God in the Old Testament. I mean, him and Paul the Apostle, man, they must have some incredible conversations in heaven, I'm convinced. I mean, they probably like swap war stories. I mean, come on, Paul, you really think you were worse than me? I put an image in that, and Paul's like, oh, come on. I used to murder the Christians, man. I actually murdered I mean, these two guys were like the poster child for if there is a person who's never going to get right with God, Paul was the New Testament candidate, and probably Manasseh was, was the Old Testament candidate, but they both become trophies of the grace of God because they become two people that everybody will look at who could say, that guy was vile, disgusting. He disgusted all of us, and the stuff that he did, I mean, and, and then God changed his life. God forgave him. They humbled themselves, and now they turned to God, and they're a follower of God, and, and God showed mercy and grace and compassion and did something wonderful with the rest of their life. What a great testimony they are. You know, as much as I wouldn't like Manasseh's experience, nor would I want Paul's experience, I'm sure grateful for their example. Not that I want to be them, but you know what? Manasseh, in some ways, thank you that you were such a wretch for so long because, boy, you really encouraged the rest of us that there's second chances. And sometimes when our lives are a mess and then God turns us around, we get so preoccupied with all the mess in our past. The wonderful thing is, do you realize the testimony and example that your life now becomes to so many other people that there is always still hope? Nobody can go too far. Nobody's too much of a mess. And sometimes people need to see that. There are people that think, oh, I just, you don't, I'm sure Manasseh would think, come on, you don't know what I've done. I wonder if sometimes when Manasseh heard the words of the prophet, he said, look, you just, do you know what I've done? Do you know how far I've gone, how filthy I became? And, and now Manasseh can tell other people, listen, yes, there's still hope. There's, God will still be merciful. God's love, you can't reach beyond it. God will still forgive. God will still be gracious. And what a wonderful testament his life becomes. There is always still hope. We need to keep praying for people believing that God can work in anybody's life and, and recognizing the reality of the extent of God's mercy. Verse 13 ends by telling us that Manasseh knew that the Lord was God. The idea is he knew for himself because, boy, after you go through something like that, the idea is Manasseh now knew for himself what was real about God. And that's what happens when you have an experience where God truly brings you to your knees and you humble yourself and you cry out to the Lord and you have an experience then you know for yourself who God is. You know for yourself his love and his mercy because of what you experience from him. In verse 14, he says, After this, he then built a wall outside the city of David on the west side of Gihon in the valley as far as the entrance of the fish gate, and it enclosed Ophel, and he raised it to a very great height. So he's now restoring the infrastructure, all the stuff that he ruined. His whole life was a ruinous path. Tear this down, ruin this, wreck that, ruin the nation. Now notice God's touched his heart, and what does he want to do? He just wants to give and rebuild. His heart's changed, man. He's just got a completely different heart now. Now he wants to help and to build things up and raise people up. And he put military captains in all the fortified cities of Judah. So he's restoring the ranks of the military to strengthen the nation again. He took away, verse 15, the foreign gods and the idol from the house of the Lord. I bet you that was humbling. 
Again, taking away the foreign gods, but probably one of the most humbling things. Can you imagine he took away the idol from the house of the Lord, going back in and taking that pornographic statue that you had put there and saying, this was horribly wrong. And I put this here. And I did this, and this is horribly wrong, and and, and I'm going to deal with this now. And he's making restitution. But see, that's what repentance does. When you genuinely repent, you start making things right. And you do whatever you got to do to make things right, no matter how humbling or difficult or painful. He's now taking initiative. He's demonstrating his heart has changed by taking ownership, and he's ridding and making right the things that he had made wrong. It says he went back in and built the mount of the house of the Lord in Jerusalem, and he was cast out of the city. He also repaired the altar of the Lord and sacrificed peace offerings and thank offerings on it. So he's now restoring worship. He rebuilds the altar. The altar was the place of worship and devotion. He restores the worship life among the people. He's sacrificing to God now, being thankful, and even, notice, commanding Judah to serve the Lord God of Israel. Verse 9 says he seduced them to do evil. Now look at the change. This guy's a totally different man. Now he's pointing people to serving God instead. Nevertheless, the people, it says, still sacrifice on the high places, but only to the Lord their God. He's turning the nation the whole other direction. What a wonderful change of one man that's now impacting a whole nation. Again, amazing to see. Now, the rest of the acts of Manasseh, his prayer to God and the words of the seers who spoke to him in the name of the Lord God of Israel. Indeed, they're written in the book of the kings of Israel. Also, his prayer and how he received his entreaty and all his sin and trespass And the sites where he built high places and set up wooden images, carved images, before he was humbled, this is a summary of the testimony of his life, indeed they're written among the sayings of Hosea. Verse 20, so Manasseh rested with his fathers, and they buried him in his own house, and then his son Amnon reigned in his place. And verse 21 says, and Amnon was 22 years old when he became king, And he reigned, notice, only two years in Jerusalem. So what a diversity. 55-year reign, two-year reign. There's a time and a season for every purpose under heaven. God lets one guy reign for 55 years. Another guy, God says, two years off the throne. God's sovereign. His ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. His ways are higher than our ways. And again, just amazing to say, we don't know. Do we got 55 years or do we got two years? We don't know. This guy only reigns two years. But notice verse 22 says, he did evil in the sight of the Lord as his father Manasseh had done. Now, one of the downsides of what Manasseh had done in his many evil years is he had set a pattern that unfortunately some of his sons gravitated towards. And though ultimately he repented in his latter days, the unfortunate thing is his sons had learned the days of his flesh, and Amnon here chose to take the way of the flesh rather than to recognize that his father had repented and got right with God and take that example. Instead, he took the fleshly path of the past ways of his father. It says he did evil in the sight of the Lord, as his father Manasseh had done, for Amnon sacrificed to all the carved images which his father Manasseh had made and served them. Verse 23, this is the sad testament, and he did not humble himself before the Lord as his father Manasseh had humbled himself. But Amnon trespassed more and more 
And then his servants conspired against him and killed him in his own house. That's why his reign only lasted two years. He was assassinated in his own home. But the people of the land executed all those who had conspired against King Ammon. And then the people of the land made his son Josiah king in his place. Now, what's so sad? Verse 23, here's another man who's doing evil in the sight of the Lord. The difference is it tells us that there came a point in Manasseh's life, though he'd done a lot of wrong, right? I mean, he pretty much wasted his whole life. You talk about somebody who just kind of, you know, wasted and squandered away the majority of his life. But at the end of his life, he humbled himself and he finished well. And God doesn't care so much about how we start as much as how we finish. And he finished well. Now, Amnon, on the other side of that, did evil just like his father had done. Certainly, he had to hear the testimony. Look, you can repent. I even wonder, maybe, was this father saying, look, son, for decades, I did such wrong. And I mean, the... the the testimony of the things he had to hear about. And then I finally humbled himself. He had to hear the stories and the testimonies before his father died. But yet Amnon chose, it says, not to humble himself as his father humbled himself, but he trespassed more and more. That is, he let his heart continue to be hard and his conscience continue to harden and harden and harden. And he just continued down the path of darkness more and more and more and more, and he never humbled himself. And he died in that dreadful condition. He self-destructed in his trespass and rebellion and sin and wickedness. And you know, there are two paths, folks. <laughs> there are two paths. We may have done a lot of wrong things, but there's always opportunity to humble ourselves and repent. How wonderful that God offers that, the forgiveness, the blood of Jesus Christ to cleanse us, but the reality is God has given us a free will and we can choose to continue in paths of darkness and sin more and more and more. And sadly, all that does is lead to self-destruction. It leads to self-destruction. And Amnon, such a sad testimony of that. May that never be our epitaph that we chose when we had opportunity to humble ourselves to never humble ourselves and to keep going down the road more and more. God help us to never do that. And God help us to be individuals who would beg people not to take the path of Amnon and instead beg people to turn like Manasseh while there's still opportunity to do such. Well, let's stand. We'll finish there for this evening.